I'm reading from Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so, God called the vault sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation plants bearing seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth 
and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Today we launch into the first part of the Bible, first page of the Bible, and immediately you realise, of course, we're getting into controversy. Uh, and you're, you're aware of that just because you live in this world. Uh, the debate about uh, creation and evolution, questions about how old the earth is. Uh, are we talking about six literal 24-hour days or not? And I'm aware that as we come to Genesis chapter 1, uh, that we've got a room full of people coming from different places. Uh, there are some people who are, would be very happy for me as we come to Genesis chapter 1 to disprove uh, views, modern scientific theories about the origins of the earth. Uh, there are others of us in the room who may prefer me to try and help you integrate what the Bible says with what my, modern science says. Uh, and then there's probably a third group here, and you may not even be sure that you believe in the God of the Bible. And one of the reasons for that will be because you have certain scientific preconceptions and they don't really allow for a creator God. Right, so we all hit this passage from different angles. Now, can I say, it's not, it's not wrong to actually uh, ask these questions uh, about the interaction between the Bible and science. Uh, not, not an inappropriate question to ask. But if you're trying to understand Genesis 1, I want to suggest these questions are slightly misplaced. Um, I want you to imagine for a moment that it's, um, uh, sorry, I'll stay here. Uh, <laughs> I want you to imagine for a moment that uh, you're a first-year medicine student at Adelaide University. There are a few medicos or health-related people, and you're in, in this first year, you're studying anatomy, you're coming up for your first semester exam, and the professors have gotten soft, okay? I can see those of you who are medical practitioners will recoil at this thought, but the professors have decided that uh, for students studying first-year anatomy, you're allowed to take in the one textbook into the exam to help you uh, in your anatomy exam. And, of course, there's a recommended textbook that has 1,500 pages, and uh, you're all allowed to take that into the exam. So you're all standing around, all this first-year anatomy one, 101 sort of class, standing around before the exam, and everyone's got their big, hefty 1,500-page anatomy book recommended by the professor under their arm, but you spot one of your first-year science medicine students across, across the hallway and you, you notice they don't have the recommended textbook. In fact, you get a bit closer and you discover the book that they've got is, in fact, this book, right? It is the Australian Heritage Cookbook. And you think, oh, no, you know, they've forgotten which exam we're in. So you go and you say, what, are, what on earth are you doing with a cookbook going into an anatomy exam? And... Uh, they say to you, well, you do know it's anatomy and you are 
what you eat, okay? And, and then at that point, you would just fear for your friend and think that they completely lost the plot at that stage. But can I say, the, the early chapters of Genesis are not written to answer modern scientific questions. That's not the purpose that they're written, in much the same way as a cookbook is not really directly relevant to the whole question of anatomy for a, a medical student. So it, you can see sort of a tangential connection, but it's not really very strong. However, when you come to Genesis chapter 1, it answers far more profound and significant questions. Questions like, uh, who is God? Uh, questions like, who are we and what is our purpose in this world? Uh, what is the world like and why is the world like it is? What's our relationship to God and the world that he's made? And also, why, why is the world such a strange mixture of things? Why is the world a place of beauty and charm and grace and delight, but also pain and hate and sickness and death? Questions like that get raised and answered by this first part of the Bible. So rather than impose our questions on the Bible, what I'm going to do is turn to Genesis chapter 1, or chapter 1, 1, to chapter 2, verse 3, and I'm going to focus on it for the next three weeks, this same section of the Bible. Now, let me explain why we're focusing on this section uh, for three weeks. When you come to the Bible, the... Um, Editors have conveniently put in chapter and verse markers to help us wander our way through the Bible in helpful ways. But of course, they're not original to the text. They're added by editors hundreds, thousands of years after uh, the original text was written. When you come to this book of Genesis, there are certain literary markers that help you understand how this part of the Bible is broken up the sections that it comes in. I want to show you where they appear because it just helps you as you think through what are the big ideas. So if you've got your Bible there or you've got your phone, just pull it out with me. You see the first marker point in uh, the book of Genesis comes at chapter 2, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Now this, this phrase, this is the account appears at significant points to introduce new ideas as you go through this, this book. So in chapter uh, 5, verse 1, you see the same sort of phrase appearing again there. This is the written account of Adam's family line. Okay? Uh, you get the same sort of idea in chapter 6, verse 9 in relation to Noah. Or you understand that Abraham is the one through who promises are made. He's a very significant character in this book and for the rest of the Bible. And if you go to chapter 11, verse 25, we're told this is the account of Terah, uh, Abraham's uh, forebear. And he is, Abraham is then introduced in the promises to Abraham. All right? So that's the, the sort of literary marker, if you like, that appears regularly throughout uh, the book of Genesis. So this first section, chapter 1, 1 to 2, 3, is this first little block. And it sets out really foundational things so that we might understand who we are in God's purposes. Right? Three weeks on this section. It'd be great to keep reading it over and over again uh, as we look at it together. But let me pray for us as we come to this, this first part today. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that uh, you're a gracious God who speaks to us. And Father, we ask that as we consider your word this morning, uh, these essential truths... Uh, to do with what you say to us 
in the Bible about ourselves, about who you are. Father, help us to understand and engage well with them and to be faithful as we wrestle with their implications. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I meant to say there's an outline on the leaflet if you'll find that helpful, and I'm just going to work my way through that. Uh, what do you discover when you look at Genesis chapter 1 is we're looking at a very sophisticated piece of literature, and yet that may, may not have been your first impression when you heard it read. Uh, it's quite a long reading this morning, and you would have picked up the nature of repetition, and maybe you thought actually it's a bit boring the way the same themes uh, gone over again or the same framework Perhaps you even thought it was a bit childish. I mean, if you're trying to write the great work of our time, would you start with chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning? You know, like it's, uh, it, it, it raises those sort of questions. But I want to say it's, it's not simplistic, although it is simple. It is quite profound. Um, let me point you to some of the features of this chapter that, that indicate how carefully it's been structured, but also that point to the central message. So, for example, the use of the number seven occurs right the way through this chapter. In the Bible, uh, seven is a number that points to uh, wholeness or perfection or to the ideal. And you see the way seven is repeated. There are seven days. Uh, the first sentence in this uh, chapter has seven Hebrew words. The second sentence has 14 Hebrew words, uh, seven times two. Uh, and God made is echoed seven times throughout the chapter. And it was so seven times. It was good seven times. Even the, um, each, of, each of the day structures follows a certain pattern. Uh, for example, uh, on day one, there is the command from God, let there be light. Uh, then there's a fulfilment and there was light. There's an explanation or an elaboration. Uh, the light was good. And then you get the day formula that occurs at the end of the day. There was evening and there was morning the first day. It's highly structured and the idea is to highlight the core message that you get in this part of the Bible. So if I was to ask you to pick one word that captures the big idea of this first chapter of the Bible, what would it be? I only gave you one word, all right, kept you tight. What word would you choose? Now, I'm going to get you to swap that idea with someone next to you. I'm not going to ask you for feedback, so you can say any stupid thing you like, really, because you won't have to own up to it. Uh, but I do want you to swap the idea with someone nearby, the one word that captures the first chapter of the Bible. All right, give it a go. You only have five seconds each, so it shouldn't take you long, all right? Okay, and don't, like you could have come up with a few different ideas here, but let me tell you what I think is the key word that captures the main theme of chapter one. And it is God. Okay? God. Now I know that's, you know, sort of, if your kids were here, they would have got that, but um, God. Right? Now here's, the, here's actually the hero of this part of the Bible. So he's mentioned 35 times in this opening section. For those who are good at their, their times tables, that's seven times five, 
right? It's, it's very significant the way in which this is focused on. He's the subject of almost every sentence in uh, this, this opening um, introduction to, to the scriptures. He exists before anything. So we're told, in the beginning, God. Uh, he's not created, he is there. And then God creates. God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, he brought the whole universe into existence, which just highlights his extraordinary nature. Uh, I went to um, uh, the source of all worthwhile scientific knowledge during the week, Google, and um, it told me that, that according to the latest scientific feed, feedback, they've worked out that there are over 400 billion stars in the universe and over 170 million galaxies that they've come up with so far. Now, I, I can't get my head around that. But we're talking here about the God who put it all into place. His extraordinary capacity. But then when you study nature, it's the fine detail that corresponds to that. Uh, you know, a spider's web or some subatomic sequencing. Uh, you know, the, the intricate detail of what goes on. You know that if you fiddle with one bit of nature, uh, it'll have roll-on effects for other pieces of nature. That is, the whole is just thrown out because it's so carefully crafted together. Friends, this is the God that we're introduced to here in Genesis chapter 1. So now, one of the psalms says in Psalm 19 verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. Well, they do. We discover everything is created for a purpose. As you go through each of those days, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And you get to verse 31 and we're told it's very good. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Now at this point we're not talking about a moral statement, uh, good as opposed to degenerate or bad. We're talking about the purpose. It fits the purpose for which God has made it. Um, in Isaiah chapter 45, uh, the prophet says this, He who created the heavens and the earth, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He didn't create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. Uh, all modern scientific endeavour actually stems from this understanding of a God who has made the world this way. It actually can be studied and understood and put into shape. We're told this is a God who creates by his word. Now, you go through Genesis chapter 1, there's not one scientific formula because that just isn't the point. God creates everything from nothing by speaking. And God said, and it was so. But can I say, this, this is something, if you've been a Christian for a while, you get, but is such a uh, contrast to the way our world thinks, and certainly a contrast to the way the ancient world thought. Uh, if you went to the old uh, Babylonian epic, the Enuma Elish, uh, it has a creation story uh, for how the world came to existence. And basically it involved a whole series of gods fighting with one another to create. And in fact, if my memory serves me well, one of the gods has his head chopped off and it falls off and rolls away and becomes the earth. 
You know, that, that's the Babylonian story. Now, that's in such sharp contrast uh, to this picture of the God who creates. And even modern sort of Big Bang theories, um, science reaches into the dim, dark past as far as we can go to explore the foundations of our world, hits a wall, and then posits a solution which is a big spontaneous event uh, to explain how the world came to existence. It, it's, it's a hypothetical, random suggestion for how the world came to be. When you look at Genesis chapter 1, there is nothing that is random, there is nothing that is by accident, there is nothing that is left to chance. God speaks and what he says happens. And all of creation... Uh, is dependent upon him. Now, God doesn't set up a, um, a self-contained world that's self-producing and self-running. Uh, God superintends his creation and sustains it. It's Paul the Apostle in Acts 17 who reflects on the nature of the world as he's talking to the Athenians. And he says, God gives all men life and breath and everything else. Every breath you take, every signal your brain sends to the rest of your body, God superintends. Friends, this is the creator God of the Bible. That is who he is. What I'm going to do for a few moments is, is just to switch gears and just talk about what are some of the implications that flow from believing in this creator God. Uh, what, what's the impact of it on, on us? I want to contrast uh, with other sort of worldviews and just think them through with you. We've already seen some of the, um, uh, the comparable understanding in the ancient world. Uh, the religions of the ancient world had a stack of gods and they all made their contribution to the creation or to the running, running of the world. Now, Genesis 1 just completely blows this idea out of the water. Now, that is, the, the scriptures were just as controversial in their day as what they are today uh, when it comes to these sorts of issues. Because uh, when you come to Genesis chapter 1, what we're told is there is only one God. There is the God, and he made everything. And even the way in which God is referred to in this chapter uh, tells you that that is the case. When you get to chapter 2, verse 4 of Genesis... Uh, in the English, English versions, it reads that God is introduced as the Lord God. Uh, Yahweh is effectively. But the, the word used for God back in chapter 1, 35 times, is Elohim. Right? It's not the, Yahweh is sort of like the personal name for God. Elohim is sort of the generic uh, name for God. Now, there's a deliberate thing going on here. Uh, Back in chapter 1, what we're told 35 times is that the God made the heavens and the earth. The one and only true and living God, the God, did it all. The God, the God, the God, the God, the God, the God, the God. Just in case you're thick, right? 35 times. Not many gods, not many options. The God. Now, when we talk about the God today, of course, it rankles with everybody. It's so arrogant to say there's only one true and living God. Right? It was just as controversial in this day. Um, 
in the ancient world, all the different gods contributed in different ways and the creation was attributed to gods or described as gods. The sun and the moon uh, were normally uh, given names because they were gods who controlled the seasons. Right? Gods, 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 gods. Notice in Genesis chapter 1, the sun and the moon, they're not even named. They're not given names because the God made them. He controls all that there is. It's deliberate to show they're under the total authority of the one true God. And just as Genesis cuts across ancient worldviews, it's the same today with modern religious views as well. Um, today it's popular to think that all religions are essentially the same. Uh, that, you know, they all talk about God and love. They're all, all optional paths to the same destination. But even a, a quick comparison shows that those views just don't hold water. Um, if you compare the God of Genesis chapter 1 to Hinduism. In Hinduism, there are many gods. Uh, They all have their own sphere of influence. Uh, There's a circular view of history. Uh, Reincarnation is built into an understanding. And yet, the God of the Bible, he is the eternal one. He is the creator of all things. Nothing is random or chaotic, and people are valuable and made in his image. We'll come back to that in the coming weeks. But if you, you know, like, if you asked a Hindu what's the difference between, you know, Nandor and a cockroach, right, um, a Hindu would say essentially, essentially nothing, actually, is what a Hindu would say. Um, they're just all sort of creatures, and Nandor is here based on decisions he made in a previous life. You know, there's that sort of sense of randomness and circularity. Uh, If you compare with Buddhism, for example, uh, there is no God in Buddhism. In fact, you achieve enlightenment through escaping this physical world. Uh, You need to reject pleasure in order to soar. Notice how strikingly contrasting that is to what we read here in Genesis chapter 1. In the Bible, we're told God is good and he made a good world and he made it so that we can enjoy it the wonder of it the beauty of it pleasure is good that's clear and built into the nature of creation and even if you compare with modern worldviews that are non-religious the, the contrast is just as striking uh, take atheism the belief that there is no god Uh, It's been made popular in recent years by Hitchens and and Dawkins and Lawrence Krauss. Uh, On this view, we're all just sort of random collations of atoms caught up in the slipstream of a meaningless universe. That's just, you know, who we are. Uh, One author um, said this, uh, we just are, for a little while anyway, and then we aren't. Uh, it, it, It captures the atheism of our age. Sue and I went to the funeral of a friend just a couple of months ago and uh, this is a person we'd known for decades. Uh, And at this funeral, uh, we were told that that life was circular. 
and you know we sort of live for a period and then we sort of die and our children carry on in our stead and it was the specific request of this person who died that their ashes be taken and scattered at the place where they were born to complete the circle of the cycle of life. Uh, it was Lion King theology. Um, so different to the perspective of Genesis 1. The God who creates and gives meaning and purpose and where humankind are at the pinnacle of creation and are imbued with value. And we'll come back and we'll look at it more closely next week. Made for a relationship with God and for one another. Or environmentalism. This is a huge thing right now in our culture. Uh, the question of rising sea levels, a population that we can't sustain. Uh, should we have coal-fired power? Should it be renewables? Um, all sorts of questions are being raised. And for some, of course, creation actually is their God. Uh, it becomes the centre of existence and meaning and purpose come from understanding ourselves as part of the created order. And on this sort of understanding, our animals are just as significant as human beings. And that's why some, some uh, environmentalists can talk about the murder of whales. So as, if, as if they can be executed because they, and have the same value as a human being and therefore equate to murder. Now, when you come to Genesis, and again we'll explore this next week, it corrects that sort of thinking. Uh, God is mirrored in some aspects of what he's created, but he's not actually in creation. Um, that's a pantheistic sort of worldview. He's separate and distinct from what he's made. Also, God gives creation value and purpose. We don't have to discover it. It's a given by God. And as we go through this chapter, you see that human Human beings are given a, uh, a value in creation that is above all the rest of the created order. It doesn't mean we can rip off the environment. We're actually charged to superintend it. But we are told that we have a very significant role in God's purpose and in relationship with God. Uh, again, we'll explore that next week. Or it contrasts with the worldview that's dominated by materialism or or hedonism. Uh, in this sort of worldview, the goal becomes to acquire stuff or experiences. Uh, can I say, I actually think this is the worldview that primarily dominates Australians and dominates the Western world, right? the, the acquisition of stuff or experience. And you can see that if you just follow what's going on with the, the, um, uh, the election right now and the parties and what they're promoting. Essentially, the narrative of um, the leading contenders for running our government are economic. Um, that is, who can provide the standard of living that I would like to become adjusted to? And so questions of home ownership and super and negative gearing and franking credits and w which government can deliver uh, what I want. Now, I'm not saying the economy is irrelevant uh, to this election debate. All I'm saying is it dominates the thinking of the average Australian in terms of what's important. 
But friends, Genesis is clear. We, we don't get our value, our significance from what God has made, but from him, the creator. Do you understand the framework that's in place? Uh, if you're a materialist or a hedonist, you look to what is made to give you your sense of identity or value. If you're a Christian, you look to the God who made everything to give you your sense of value and purpose as you actually have responsibility for the created order. A non-Christian worldview reverses it. You see, and we get we dismiss God and we look for our identity and what has been created. It's all the wrong way around. But God sets that in place and makes it clear so we don't get our understanding of the world back to front. Friends, let me just try and um, pull a few of these threads together. What does it mean to believe in the God who created everything? I want to acknowledge that it will have implications for a worldview that's based on uh, atheistic, biological, evolutionary thinking about the nature of the universe. It, it will have implications for how you think about the world we live in. But there are more essential things that it drives us to. So when you understand that uh, the God of Genesis 1 created absolutely everything, it actually humbles us. Uh, when you're face to face with the God who has created the world in which he's created and the universe he's created, you understand that we're not random collations of atoms floating around, but we've been given purpose by the one who has made everything. Listen to the way the psalmist describes his thinking about the God who made the world. Psalm 8. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them or human beings that you care for them? Do you get the contrast being made here? The God who has made everything, his vast authority and power and control. Who are we in the scheme of things? It also means we have accountability. Um, when you understand Genesis 1, you understand that God is the owner of this world. It's a bit like if you're a tenant. Uh, you know that you need to treat the property you're renting in line with the intentions of the landlord. And there's that sense of accountability that comes from living in this world. We don't squat in this world on our own terms. We actually live under the authority and instruction of the one who made it. But here's the thing I want you to have squarely set in your mind as you go home today. When you look at the nature of the God who created everything and you look at the way he has created everything and his purpose and intention, you need to understand he is a God who can be trusted. Uh, creation actually reflects his very character. I have um, a grandson whose name is Ollie. He's about two years old now. A couple of months ago, he was visiting with his parents at our place we have a staircase in our house which is wooden. 
10 stairs up to the first landing, about six to the second landing, right? Very steep. And uh, his parents are really happy for Ollie just to climb up and down those stairs, and he does pretty well. I'm a helicopter grandparent, you know, sort of hovering around, worried for my grandchildren. Ollie went up the stairs the other day. I sort of didn't follow him, but I waited at the bottom just to see how he was doing. Yeah, made it up to the top, decided to come back down. He got down to the, the first landing, and I was standing at the bottom, and he turned around the corner, and he was, you know, about 18, 19 months at the time, and he, he looked at me, right, his papa at the bottom of the stairs, and he smiled, right? And he did something he had never, ever done before. He smiled, he took two steps off, and jumped. <laughs> right? With a smile on his face. Right? Now... He did that for two reasons, right? One is because Papa had the power to catch him, right? Uh, All-powerful Papa. And, uh, but he also was convinced that Papa wouldn't step out of the way and let him crash to the ground. Papa was good, right? He had both those sort of characteristics in mind. Now, can I say, when you look at this opening chapter of the Bible, it makes it so clear why you can trust a God who is all-powerful in this way. Just, it's built in. There's no question God has power and authority. Who else could create the universe in the way in which he's done? But also he's created a world with beauty and with goodness that just reflects his grace and his generosity, his character in that way. They're, they're qualities that you see expanded upon as you go through the scriptures. Now, of course, when you get to Genesis 3, and we're not actually going to focus on Genesis 3 over these three weeks, you see people turning their back on God and it causes a fracturing in the world. Uh, so the good world now has a fatal sort of flaw written through it because of the sinfulness of humanity. And yet the rest of the Bible, the rest of the Bible elaborates what the God of Genesis 1 is like. A God who is good and generous and kind. Because from Genesis chapter 3 on in the scriptures, what you have is a picture of a God who keeps being gracious and kind and merciful to people who turn their back on him. His very nature is reflected in that ongoing way. When you come to the New Testament, Colossians chapter 1, it speaks about the Lord Jesus in these words. All things were created through Jesus, and in him all things hold together. <coughs> See, here is the good God who through his Son, through whom everything that you see and taste and touch and feel, everything was made through him. Through his Son... He actually is stepping out into this world to redeem us from our rebellion against him. That is, his character of goodness and grace is reflected in his very purpose of salvation. Friends, what we have here in Genesis chapter 1 is an introduction to a God who is unimaginably awesome in his capacity. And we need to be in awe of that. But friends, we're also face to face with the God who is good. 
and he can be trusted. That's the God that we read about here in Genesis 1. Can I pray for us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your uh, great kindness to us. We thank you that you're a God who is generous and gracious and merciful. And Father, we pray that you will help us to keep reflecting on your nature and your character and your purposes, uh, that we'll be people who keep trusting you, uh, seeking to love you and honour you, but, but most of all, just, just to know you better and what you're like, uh, your awesome power and authority, but your wonderful grace and mercy, especially uh, as we see that in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one through whom all things were made. Amen. Thanks, man. I did preach for a while this morning, but there's only just the one question that's come in. Let me read the question and make a couple of comments. Um, the creation account in Genesis has come under attack in recent times, even in Christian circles. Some teach that we ought to read Genesis 1 to 11 figuratively, not literally, and that the fall of man or sin is not literal. Why do you think they've done this? How are we to read and understand Genesis 1 to 11? Now, this is a really easy question to answer. Not uh, That is, it, it's, um, it touches on a whole range of different issues. But let me just make a couple of comments that, that hopefully might be helpful. So the question is really about the way we read these early chapters of the Bible. Um, some hold themselves out as Christians, read them figuratively, not literally. Uh, can I say that when you go to the New Testament... New Testament relies consistently on these early chapters of Scripture in terms of establishing who we are in relation to God, our sinfulness, um, the fall of Genesis chapter 3, the nature of God being the creator God. If you go to Acts chapter 17, when Paul's speaking to the Athenians, it's very clear there. You can go to almost any spot in the Bible. Romans chapter 5 speaks about the sin of Adam, the implications for us as a result uh, going back to Genesis chapter 3. So you can't dismiss these early chapters of the Bible as um, just a cartoon story that doesn't have relevance. So on the one hand, um, you've got that. Can I say that on the other hand, though, the question here implies that we need to read it all literally, um, and I'm not sure it's as simple as that either. Let me just point to a couple of things, raise questions for you rather than answer them, and uh, we'll see how we go. But... I don't know if, as you were listening to Genesis chapter 1, did you pick up in day 1 um, that there's light created? Okay. And then in day 4, uh, the sun and the moon are created. Okay. That's an interesting sequence, isn't it? We would have normally thought it would have been the other way around. Um, so why have we got that there in that sort of sequence? It's because I think there's something slightly more going on here in Genesis 1 speaking about the nature of the creator God. So let me tell you why I think the primary reason for that, that line of thinking is there is because God created everything, right? And the, the author of this chapter uh, is trying to make it very clear that the sun and the moon do not have independent autonomy or don't, they don't create the light. The Lord God creates the light. He creates the light and then he also creates the sun and the moon afterwards. Interesting sequence of events there. The, the point of the fact that there's something more going on than just a literal scientific narrative of events. Let me point to one other thing. Um, you might feel free to come and chat to me about these, but uh, 
You know how at the end of each day there was evening and morning out, first day, second day, third day, fourth day, you know, as you go through. Um, it's interesting on the seventh day, chapter 2, verse 3, God blesses the seventh day and makes it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. There is no evening, morning, seventh day. As far as I can tell, as you read through Genesis, like here, we're still in the seventh day. Isn't that interesting? It hasn't finished. Now, literally, of course, that isn't true. But actually, when you think theologically through the message of the Bible, it's completely true. So I'm just trying to signal that there's a risk if you try and read science into chapter 1, because you actually miss the very point being made. Uh, by God, as he elaborates, but you can't dismiss it as if it's not true or real because the rest of the Bible is built on that reality, okay? So have I completely solved the question for you? No, I haven't. And if you want to chat to me about it, feel free to.